Well, good morning, everyone. What a joy and privilege it is to have you join us for our 10.30 service. My name is Shabu. I'm one of the pastors here at Canterbury. Uh, this morning, we're going to be talking about something that's very familiar. Now, this is, even if you're someone who's exploring the Christian faith or someone who knows who Jesus is, this very symbol behind me is something we're very familiar with. It's the cross. And as soon as we see that imagery, we know that it means that we're talking about the death of Jesus Christ. This morning, we are going to reflect on the death of Jesus Christ, and particularly from the angle of the guy who wrote the Gospel of John. John 19 is the death of Jesus. His trial, his rejection, and his death. But the reason why John wrote this, do you remember? Why did he write this? So that we may see that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that in Him we may have life. And this morning, friends, I want us to consider King Jesus. With that in mind, let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this privilege you've given us to consider your Son. Oh Lord Jesus, risen one who rules and reigns over all, including now in this moment, Display your authority through your word. In your name, Amen. Many years ago, um, I had the great privilege to... I wouldn't say privilege. Uh, I'd probably say it was this moment of my son teaching me a lesson. Uh, so we were coming home and it was late night and... I wanted to take our son inside very quickly. Uh, if you have little ones, you know this, that if they don't get their sleep, the next day is not going to be so much fun. And that was what was at hand. But my son, who's our dreamer, constantly uh, looks up and says, look, dad, look, dad, look, dad. And he's trying to point to me the stars that were looking very beautiful. But because I was so familiar to it, it didn't capture my heart. It didn't make me to stop and awe and go, wow. Friends, John 19 is such a chapter. It should stir something in us that makes us go, wow. We know the story so far, don't we? Jesus has been handed over to Pilate by the Jewish leaders of the time. And so now in chapter 19, Jesus faces torture first. Have a look with me in verses 1 to 3. And Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King Jesus. Sorry, Hail, King of the Jews. And struck him with their hands. What a, what a striking image this is. They're mocking him. They're making fun of him. And not only that, they flog him. Now, you might already know this, but this kind of um, treatment of Jesus that's been administered to him by the soldiers has quite a bit of severity. And this moment is what's known as scourging. If you can visualize this, there would have been a whip. At the end of this whip were fragments of bones 
or pieces of metal that were bound to it. So when they hit a person, most probably on his back, it would have ripped away his flesh. This is what Jesus is experiencing. Friends, it's here because it should cause all of us to kind of go, oh, this should make us feel uncomfortable. It's a confronting picture. But notice something. The, the soldiers are saying much. They're mocking him. They're teasing him. But Jesus himself, nothing. He's silent. Friends, it's there for a reason. Jesus' silence is there because for the original hearers then and even for us today, is declaring again who he is. This is one the prophets wrote of, like Isaiah, who would write, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Friends, this picture is a confronting picture of one who is the suffering king. The one who willingly stood there. The one who willingly was whipped. The one who willingly was mocked. The one who is now already fulfilling as scripture said would happen. So the pilot once again brings him before. And last time he declared him as king of the Jews. This time declares him as the man. And it stirs something in the people. What a sight it is to see this man standing there. The man who raised Lazarus from dead. Is now being told, behold the man. Beaten. Bleeding. Bruised. And he says, here he is. What happens to the chief priests and the rulers? What is their response? Have a look with me in verses 6 to 8 of chapter 19. What do they say? Crucify him. Crucify him. And Pilate answers back and says, I find no guilt in him. And they say, we have a law. According to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Pilate is taken aback and he's even more afraid. Pilate brings... Jesus before them and there's such a stirring and hate towards him. They cannot stand him because Jesus has declared that he is the Messiah, that he is the son of God. And to them, that is blasphemy. That's where they use the language of the law, places like Leviticus and saying that this man needs to die. But their call is not to stone him, which is what the law requires, rather to crucify him. As church historians and others have written in places like even Roman historians would write that the cross is a cruel and disgusting penalty. And then the Jewish historian Josephus would write, called it the worst of deaths. But see, what's interesting, as much as there are people crying out to crucify him, crucify him. Pilate's response is of fear. Now, why is Pilate afraid? Is he afraid because there may be a riot in his hands? But I think it's much more than that. He's a man who believes in pagan gods and stories of gods walking amongst humans. And, and he's thinking, is this true? Is this the son of God? 
he's stirred and, and he's taken aback. And so Pilate wants to question him, asking, where are you from? And he says in John 19, 10 to 11, have a look with me. It says, so Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it has been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greatest sin. Jesus has been very silent all along in this moment, but this time... Jesus communicates this powerful statement where he says, You have no authority over me, and unless it has been given to you from above. Friends, this is Jesus' way of saying that, Pilate, you have no authority. The, actually, the very authority that has been given to you is from my Father. And the very reason that your existence is for this very purpose, to fulfill what scripture has said would happen to fulfill God's plan of salvation through Jesus Christ. Jesus is not some helpless person just getting pulled along. He is a willing participant to do the Father's will. This is why Jesus is the perfect, obedient Son. This is the one who does not resist the Father's will the one who is willingly going to do what the Father has asked him to do. So since that statement, Pilate is trying to free him. And so he brings them before, before the judgment's heat. And he says, behold, not the man. But this time he says again, behold, your king. Friends, um, sometimes when we read passages, I don't know if we feel the sense of drama. What do the chief priests do as this is brought before them? They cry out in verse 15. It's up here on the screen. Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. Friends, what a confronting picture again. Pilate asks him the question, shall I crucify your king? And their response is, we have no king. That is the posture of the hearts that are hardened to who Jesus is. It's another way of saying we have our own king of our own making. That is Caesar. A man who depicts everything that is ungodly. It's a scene that should stir the original hearers and even us today. As they yell out, crucify him, take him away. And then now we have the crucifixion of Jesus. As much as the crowd is calling out for Jesus' death, unbeknownst to them and they don't see this or fully understand this because this is God's salvation plan who is standing before them because all around in Jerusalem right now and this very scene in that time most probably would have been happening is the Passover lambs are being prepared to be slain but unbeknownst to them who stands before them who is the one that is about to go to the cross the very first chapter of John, these are the words that we heard. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
This is God's salvation plan being unfolded. The rejection of the king by the very own people that should be worshipping him. Not only Pilate himself is responsible, his, his own hands are guilty because he does not stop it, but he allows it, showing his fear of man and rejection of Jesus as the king. And so Jesus is hung on a cross. Not only hung, his hands and feet are pierced. And he's hung there dying. As tradition would go, there are four soldiers that would have been in charge of that crucifixion. And they divide the spoils as they would have. But unbeknownst to them, what they're doing is fulfilling what scripture said would happen. John actually is quoting from Psalm 22. It's up here on the screen. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet, can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Jesus is the one that the psalmist is speaking of ultimately. The one who is definitely surrounded by evildoers. The ones whose hand and feet have been pierced. His very clothes are being gambled away. And the purpose for this is to say, this is God's plan. This is happening as God said it would happen. The very final breaths of Jesus again. A reminder, this is God's plan. In John 19, 28 to 30, after this, Jesus, knowing that all now was finished, said to fulfill scripture, what? I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. In this moment, Gospel of John, the author John is writing and he's quoting scripture here and there, not for the sake of it, to say this is God's plan being unfolded for us. He's going to places like Psalm 69 where it says, Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there are none, and for my comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. And again in Psalm 22, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of my joint. My heart is like wax, it's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Friends, this is a confronting picture. And these verses are here for a purpose. This is God's plan. This is happening as God said as it would. And when Jesus says, if this, he thirsts. It should stir for those of us who have been following in our Gospel of John series or would have read earlier in John. What did Jesus say about thirst? In John 7, he said, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Friends, these words, I thirst, is to fulfill scripture. But it's also ushering in this reality, this new reality for those of us who know Jesus. That Jesus had to thirst. The very statement that Jesus says that he thirsts is John's way of saying the only way one thirsts in this context to both fulfill scripture but also to declare that Jesus offers living water because he was willing to become thirsty on our behalf. 
because he became sin on that cross. So, this Jesus, this King, he dies, the one and only true God. And he utters these words just before his death. He utters these beautiful words, it is finished, it is completed, it is ended. And friends, what has ended? In other words, Jesus has done it, it's complete. He is the way, the truth and the life. He is the Lamb who is willing to die for the sins of the world. He is the one who has full authority even to raise a dead man to life, was willing to give up his own life. He is that Passover Lamb that was sacrificed for the sins of the world. He's the one who became thirsty so you and I don't have to thirst again because we have the Spirit of God living in us because this is what Jesus said, this is what Scripture said, this is what God said and Jesus has fulfilled it, he has finished. So his lifeless body hangs there. So they come to pierce him and out of his body comes blood and water. Friends, all of this is John's way of bringing in all the imagery that we've read and heard about both in Old Testament scripture and now through the Gospel of John. The blood is to describe the sacrificial victim, again pointing to the Passover lamb. The water is a picture of the Spirit. It's a mixture, it's to say Jesus has bought in this new reality. Later on, John would write about this imagery again that he would say, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. This imagery is to show to us that Jesus died. He gave his last breath. He said, it is finished. The very imagery of water and blood coming out of his body is to say his blood cleanses. The water is a picture of this, of, of the imagery of the Spirit of God. It's this um, beautiful picture, and if you can put it in an orchestra, because that moment where all of the music comes together for that final finish, this is it. And it's most, most uncanny way, isn't it? Have it think, is this how you would say, how we get victory? Through the death of someone. My friends, in this moment, this is how God had planned. And this was God's plan that Jesus is the King. Jesus is the Messiah. This is of all of what biblical history has been waiting for and, and, and writing about and pointing towards. And it should confront us again that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And salvation is not based on your terms and my terms, but His. And the reason why all of the scriptures are quoted over and over again is to remind us this is God's plan. This is God's salvation plan. That Jesus had to die. He had to be beaten and pierced and mocked and crucified 
because this is how much sin is so disgusting. Sin is terrible and horrible. And this is what sin demands. It demands death. And the only one that can conquer death is the sinless one who is willing to become sin on our behalf on that cross. Friends, I'm talking to those of us who are followers of Jesus. I pray that it stirs something in you. The thought, our Saviour, the length that he went to, the willingness he had to go through all of that so that you and I can not only have eternal life, but that we can also have the living water living in us through his Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Friends, when we read these kind of images and things, it's very easy for you and I to become so familiar to something, we become, in a sense, numb to it. Uh, sin demands justice. Sin demands death. Jesus was willing to die on a cross for you and for me. But that's the cost of sin. But for those of us who have experienced the grace of God, sometimes what happens is that we are no longer in awe and confronted by the death of Jesus. It becomes something that we become numb to. Friends, what it should do in us should stir us to worship. That we cannot be saved by our own work. It is done by his work, Jesus Christ. For those of you who don't know Jesus, this is the cost of your sin. That an innocent one had to die. An innocent one had to be crucified to become guilty on your behalf. And he now calls you to turn away from your crying out that you are not my king and call out to him and say, Jesus, be my king. And for those of us who know Jesus, the temptation is still there for us to forget that he is king. And there are many things that call out to us to be king. And the only way for us to fight against those things is not to you know, pull ourselves back in and try hard is to look to the cross. To look to the one who hung on there on your behalf and my behalf. The one who became the crucified king. Friends, if you're a follower of Jesus this week, Revel in the words, it is finished. If you're a follower of Jesus, know that your Saviour understands suffering and pain intimately. His body bears the scars still. If you don't know Jesus, we pray that you would be confronted by the depths of your sin and confronted by the goodness of God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, particularly in our day and age, 
particularly this last couple of weeks, we've been seeing people crying out for justice. And rightly so to some extent. But we also see what happens when justice falls into the hands of man. It's based on their terms. But Jesus will always bring the better justice. And he's displayed that by giving up his own life for the sake of others. So if you're someone right now struggling by the many news feeds, whatever side of the fence you sit on all of this, friends, can I encourage you to cry out for justice on Jesus' terms? He alone can bring true justice. And he has done that through his life, death and resurrection and the hope of the day when justice will happen. And so friend, I would encourage you to take hope in that. Let me pray. Father, I commit to you these words. Your kingdom come, your will be done, here on earth as it is in heaven. In your mighty name, I pray. Amen. God bless, friends.